people will talk to you about their diet history and they will say, oh, Weight Watchers, that one worked. That was great. And you're thinking, if they all worked, then why are you looking for another one? And so what people mean by worked is that they lost the weight and they kept it off for three months to a year. That's considered a success. But life is a lot longer than that. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Right off the bat, let's get hit with a dose of reality. Is there a truer statement than this? Losing weight is easy, but keeping it off, keeping it off is the hard part. Or is it? Because today we will be pondering that when we're joined by someone who has managed to shed those pounds and keep them off now for almost 40 years, four decades Victoria Moran is living proof that where there is a will, there is a way. And she is here today to share her secrets to long-term weight loss success, including battling food addiction and winning that fight for all of these years. Really impressive. Great information. Great tips from Victoria will be coming up momentarily. Plus, Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Jim Loomis will be here to help us raise our nutrition IQs when we open up the doctor's mailbag and take viewer questions, including one from someone who nearly died after having a Widowmaker heart attack four years ago. And now they, they've gone plant-based and lost a lot of weight and their health is so much better. But their doctor, though, is not 100% on board with the idea of them adopting a plant-based diet. So what advice do Dr. Loomis and Dr. Barnard have for them? We're going to find out. Also going to be tackling the question from someone who wanted some tips for dealing with the old sweet tooth. How do you crush sugar cravings? We're going to find that out as well, plus a lot more. Before we bring on Victoria, I wanted to share this new research with you, and it really drives home the point that we have so much more control over our health than we give ourselves credit for. It turns out that your weight is more powerful than your genetics when it comes to diabetes. That is the conclusion of researchers who studied more than 440,000 people. I'll say that again, 440,000 people. So we're not talking about any small sample size here, right? What the researchers did was break participants up into groups based on their body mass index and their genetic risk for having diabetes. And what they found was that those with the highest BMI were 11 times more likely to have diabetes than those who had a normal body weight. 
And the study also finds that those who had the highest BMI were at the highest risk of developing diabetes, regardless of genetics. I'll say that again. Those who had the highest BMI were at the highest risk for diabetes, regardless of whether or not it runs in their family. And of course, eating a low-fat plant-based diet has been proven effective in managing and often reversing type 2 diabetes. So that's just a little food for thought if you're ever feeling hopeless about your own health, your own situations. Because the same applies for so many of these diet-driven conditions. Talking about cancer and Alzheimer's and heart disease. Even if it runs strongly in your family, all hope is not lost. Because as we've heard, and as that study just proved, genes do not have to be your destiny. Time now for a little more motivation. Cracking the code here. How to lose weight and keep it off. Here now, Victoria Moran with her secrets for nearly 40 years of weight loss success. Victoria, thank you so very much for joining us today. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. 37 years, my goodness gracious. What a feat. What an accomplishment. Well, when you do it a day at a time, you wake up one morning and it's like, gosh, it's 37 years. I know, right? Do, do you still wake up? I know I kind of have this feeling too. I still wake up and at first it's kind of like I I have forgotten that that I'm not that person that I used to be. And so every day is just kind of new and fresh and exciting. Yeah. You know, early on for the first several years, I did have that. I also had dreams. I, I would dream that I went to a convenience store and bought all the stuff like I used to buy and ate it. And I would wake up with this awful feeling of, of guilt and remorse. And then this wonderful relief of, oh, no, you don't do that anymore. But that's been a long, long time. It's a wonderful thing to be able to eat what's really tasty and wonderful and, and feel fabulous and just not have to worry about that. Because I worry about it more than anything for 33 years. Well, let's let's dive into your story a little bit here. Uh, let's get the tail of the tape. First of all, <laughs> how, how much weight did you did you lose? You know, I lost uh, from my top weight to my current weight was 60 pounds. And that doesn't sound like so much compared to somebody like you. <laughs> and yet I lost that 60 pounds or 20 of it or 30 of it or 40 of it so many times that probably if it was all added up, it's good heavens, hundreds. Um, but yeah, 60 is, is the, the number. But the big number is what we've talked about before, the 37. Because what I see when I talk with people is that we don't look at the weight loss process. We don't look at the proverbial diet as something that's really for life. And people will talk to you about their diet history and they will say, oh, now Weight Watchers, well, that one worked. That one was good. That was great. Didn't do so well with the Jenny Craig. Not so well. I tried Atkins. That just, I don't know. But then, then I, I did Physicians Weight Loss. That one worked. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. If they all worked, 
then why are you looking for another one? And so what people mean by worked is that they they lost the weight or most of it and they kept it off for usually, in my experience, um, three months to a year. That's considered a success, but life is a lot longer than that. And to move forward in life, you want to put that problem behind you and go on and explore some of the other ones. I have always said that the trickiest part of weight loss, keeping it off long term, is that decision that you make. It's a fork in the road that you come to. And I call this my one nacho theory. And that is Mm -hmm. that you think that after you've lost this weight, you can handle that one nacho. But that one nacho, just like picking up a cigarette after you've quit for years, that one nacho leads to another and another and another. And pretty soon you're right back to where it was that you were and then we'll continue to put on weight. Is that similar in in your experience? Oh, absolutely. And that was my experience before waking up to what this is really all about. Uh, When I was quite young, I lost weight and lost weight and lost weight. And I was afraid to go off the particular food plan I was on. And so I kept losing weight, but I was getting really thin. And thank God I don't have the anorexia gene. So when I woke up and I was under 100 pounds, it was like, okay, you're cured. And so I remember exactly where I went to buy a pound of salted cashews, most of which I ate on the bus on the way home. And I doubled my weight or very nearly doubled my weight in a very, very short amount of time. I, I went from about 98 pounds up to 176 pounds in in a shorter period of time than I could have imagined. So the lesson there is you don't change what you want unless you change at the desire level. And nobody ever told me that. The other thing that I didn't know back then is that there are three basic types of people who struggle with food or with weight. You've got your type A person who's who's just a, a American, A for American. <laughs> They're a victim of the standard American diet, of a style of eating that is actually designed, probably not on purpose, but that's how it turns out, to cause weight gain. It's full of addictive substances like casein, like added fat, sugar, salt, and it's low in nutrients. So you keep looking for more. And then you've got your type B person, and I call that the baffled person, who maybe knows about nutrition, maybe not whole food plant-based nutrition, but certainly American Heart Association nutrition. They do the best they can, but then the boyfriend <laughs> leaves or the boss gets angry or something happens, and then they're going for the hagen dust. And then we've got the type C person, and that stands for compulsive, a compulsive eater or a food addict, and that's me. Um, I started having problems with food and weight as a toddler. And to complicate things in my personal life, my dad was a diet doctor, and he and my mother got very early on into the kind of health club business, but it was before health clubs were places to really exercise. They were just places to get kind of shaken around (laughs) by machines and stuff. So I was a fat kid, bad for business. And went through these stages until by my early 20s, I was truly a food addict. It's as if I had this rubber band that was my willpower and I'd stretched it and it'd go back and I'd stretch it and then I'd go on another diet. And one day that thing just stretched and it was gone. So I needed more work and more care to recover than if that had been taken care of back in the A stage. 
Yeah, food addiction is something that a lot of people wrestle with. Um, Certainly for me, when I was 420 pounds, I mean, that was just the bane of my existence. I speak so often about not being able to go a single day without fast food, without my personality just changing a total Jekyll and Hyde situation. This is a very common thing. And and I, I really wish that more people realize that food can be as addictive as alcohol or any substance out there really that to me really needs to be stressed and something you seem like you are ultra familiar with. Yeah, I think most people that that have never had this problem, and the truth is more and more people are having it simply because of the kinds of foods that we're brought up on and that, that we're exposed to. But I think people who just look at food as something to eat, they'll say, push yourself away from the table. They don't understand. And people didn't understand about alcoholism back before AA and before there was more information about that. People were like, well, what's the problem? I can have a glass of wine. I can have a whiskey every now and then. I don't get drunk. That's because we have different physiologies. We have different psychologies and different life experiences that lead people into some of these situations. So in my case, it was really a a double whammy (laughs) that, that I needed. And I had been going to meetings eh, off and on of uh, Overeaters Anonymous to try to get a handle on, on the food. And it wasn't really working, wasn't really helping because I hadn't really dedicated myself to it. But in 1983, it was so bad. And I wasn't even at my top weight. I had done some water fasting and, and I'd kept off 10 or 12 pounds. But the pain of knowing that I could feel that I was okay for a while. I'd feel like I'd lost a little weight. I could go out, need to live really fast because before you know it, you're, you're going to blow up again. Or for example, I was enrolled in a community college in my hometown of Kansas City, and it was great. I was taking philosophy. I was taking comparative religions. I loved it. And then when I went for the second semester, they had put a soft serve machine in the cafeteria. And I thought, well, that's it. I mean, either I have to drop out of school or this soft serve machine will be the end of of my eating reasonably, which indeed it was a self-fulfilling prophecy based on experience. So I completely dedicated myself to this 12-step program, which was a change from the inside out. I think of a quotation from Carl Jung about alcoholism when he said that the, the only way that these people historically had ever recovered was to have a complete emotional displacement and rearrangement, something akin to a spiritual experience. And that's really what I needed, not what the A and B person needs. You know, they need a whole food plant-based diet and, and some support and maybe some therapy. They're good. But for an addict, I think we all need something more. And what I needed was this change from the inside out. And I had been vegetarian and I had been trying so hard to be vegan. I wanted to be vegan for the animals. I would manage to do that for a month or two or six and then fall off with another binge. And once I had that change from the inside where I could actually make choices about what I was going to eat, I chose vegan 
so happy to have done that at the time that I did. My daughter was an infant, so she gets to claim lifelong vegan status. And by the way, she works as an aerial performer and a stunt performer. So no wimpy vegans around here. And once that decision was made, it wasn't easy every single day. There were some days when I would look at the clock at quarter of 11 and think, I really shouldn't be eating lunch till 12, but I'll just entertain myself here some way or other until 12 and and get to that. And there were times, of course, maybe I'd go out to eat and I'd stand up after that meal and just kind of the feeling against the waistband was, oops, I ate more than I should have. But what's so wonderful when you're eating plant-based is that you don't have to be so strict with yourself about amounts because if you had too much salad, it's really not going to make any difference. Is is that the key? Really, we're talking about nutrient density versus caloric density here and just kind of giving yourself that wiggle room knowing that you, you kind of have this fault, uh, faulty wiring in your brain that makes you that compulsive eater. So as long as you're eating that low calorie diet, you're, you're largely going to be okay here, that low calorie plant-based diet. Well, for me, I, one of the great gifts when all of this started was that for the first time in my life, I could stop thinking about calories. I was raised on calories. You know, my, my mother was like the calorie police and I knew the calories and everything. And so with this combination of really taking care of myself from the inside, of having group support, of, of having a way of life that was going to nurture my uh, emotional and spiritual well-being as, as well as physical, then I was able to get up in the morning and have a good breakfast and then have lunch and then have dinner. And I also, you know, a lot of people and a lot of plant-based people, and God bless them, if it works for you, it's a great thing to do. They bring a lot of food with them. But for me as a compulsive eater, I knew that if I had food in my bag, I'd be thinking about the food in the bag instead of the life in the day. So I don't bring food with me. I just trust that wherever I am on planet Earth, and since I've not been eating compulsively, I've been in Tibet and Nepal and all around the world where people eat all different kinds of ways. When it's time to eat, appropriate food has always been available. And I'm also a big fan of three meals a day. Back in the day when I was starting out, it was all about, you know, grazing and eating all day long. But for a compulsive eater, we kind of get turned on sometimes by eating. And so the idea of just eating when it's time to eat, living when it's time to live, makes a huge difference. Yeah, you know, and and that's something that I struggle with. You know, I think that that's very common among people such as you and I. Um, I I wonder, though, I also think that maybe it's kind of a, a personal thing for everybody to kind of find what works for them. Like for me, I'm really concerned that if I don't have a little something, something with me at all times, then I'm more likely to binge as soon as I, you know, have access to food again. And so that's kind of my way of making sure that I don't overeat in the future. Is there kind of like a balance that goes with that? And it's, it's just a personal choice. Absolutely. It's totally customized. And I think we learn by experience, you know, we try doing it one way and then we try it the other way and one way works better. So we we go forward in life customizing what is customizable and staying close to the things that 
really we need to stay close to that is we don't do the one nacho <laughs> we don't do the <laughs> first compulsive bite um we stick with whole foods from the plant kingdom these are the foods that our our bodies have evolved to be able to deal with and that's how we stay young and strong and just don't have to worry about weight you know there's so much to worry about there's so much work to do in the world right now that i'm so grateful that i don't have to spend six hours of every day worrying about what i ate what i'm going to eat and what will fit tomorrow morning it's a wonderful wonderful life beyond the binge very freeing uh but we mm -hmm. talked about food addiction not everybody can relate to that but Everybody can relate to emotional eating. We all mm -hmm. have those bad days. We all go through things. And for most of us, that also means reaching for food to be that comfort. Can you give us some tips, things that you've learned over these 37 years of ways to keep emotional eating in check as well? Yeah, I think the main thing is to know that we're not going to get happiness through the mouth. <laughs> We're going to get happiness through the heart and, and, and the mind. And so to really prioritize self-care. Lots of times when we reach for food that we don't need, it's because we're feeling not good enough or somebody said something that wasn't complimentary or, or we're afraid or a big one for me was wanting to put stuff off like, ooh, I have a deadline and I don't want to deal with it. So I'll just have a little something to eat. And, you know, for people like us, a little something can go on and on and on. So you want to really have wonderful self-care. There was a study done some years ago where they put one group on a regular, you know, diet exercise. And, and then the other group, they said, don't really worry about your diet or exercise, but be sure that at least four days a week, you take 20 minutes and just massage yourself with lotion. And at the end of the time period, the massaging people had lost more weight than the diet and exercise people. It, because there's just something about feeling complete and feeling worth it. Even just the, the ambiance around how you eat is wonderful for emotional eating. So I say to people, let's say you're going to get up in the morning and make a fabulous green smoothie. The nutrient content will not change if you put that green smoothie in a stem goblet or if you put it in a plastic superheroes cup from the Taco Bell. But how <laughs> you feel about what you're ingesting, how you feel about yourself, it's going to be a big difference. So take good care of yourself on all kinds of levels. And that starts now. You know, one of the things, too, that I think is so difficult here is when we focus on the weight, and it's hard not to focus on the weight. If you've got a doctor saying you have to lose weight and all of the commercials and the pictures in the magazines are saying you have to lose weight, but the weight is just a symptom. So if you can focus instead on today, for this day, it's the only one any of us has, that I'm not going to hurt myself with a fork. I'm going to treat myself just as well as my, I can with my food choices and with every other choice that I have. Not everything's a choice. There are certain things we have to do. But in those things that we can choose, choose nurture and also choose to live for something bigger than yourself. And that is one of the wonderful blessings of the whole food plant-based diet. You can get into it for health or weight or whatever reason, but when you've been in it a while, you start to see, oh my goodness, there are all these innocent animals involved. There, There's the ecological health of the planet involved. There are hungry people in many parts of the world that we could be freeing up food for if we weren't 
feeding it all to enslaved animals. So as you open up, you might have your friends saying, well, I'm doing keto and it's working just great for me, but it's not working great for the planet. It's not giving you this kind of extra layer of strength to keep doing what you're doing because there's more to it than just you and the food. Man, you dropped the quote of all quotes in that. I'm not going to hurt myself with a fork today. That is profound. That is powerful. And uh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. But you know what I, I like about you, Victoria, is that you practice it, you preach it, and <laughs> you teach it. That's the cool thing. Talk to us a little bit about Main Street Vegan Academy. Oh, thank you. Main Street Vegan Academy has been going since 2012. We just finished our 30th course. Um, we train and certify vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. So this is a program for people who are already committed vegans and who want to take that up a notch and perhaps to the professional level. So the certification is coach and educator, but many, pe many people also take the entrepreneurial route. Um, so um, Kat Mendenhall, Cowboy Boots, uh, V Marks the Shop convenience store in Philadelphia, Riverdale Cheese in Manhattan. These are all um, our, our graduates. So it's a wonderful, wonderful intensive course. Dr. Barnard uh, taught for us once. So historically, we've always been live and in person in New York City. So that also includes wonderful field trips. Some people say New York City is Disneyland for vegans, and I think maybe that's true. But in the era of COVID, of course, like everything else, we put the Academy on Zoom, and it went phenomenally well. So even though we already have graduates from 31 countries, it's going to be easier for people all around the world to uh, conveniently and affordably get themselves certified as vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. So all the information about that is at MainStreetVegan.net. Just click on Academy. And uh, if you have some questions, there's a way there to ask them. And and lastly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were named one of PETA's sexiest <laughs> vegans over 60. Is this true? Yeah, it was, it's a PETA's sexiest vegan over 50 contest. And I won the female category in 2016. And my co-winner in the male category was Dr. Joel Kahn. So uh, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that to me says that you have uh, aged acing. And so uh, <laughs> aced aging, correct? <laughs> there, there it is. And so that's why you're also doing this acing aging with uh, Ayurveda uh, oh, seminar yeah. coming up. So that's, that's really cool too. Thank you. That's coming up the weekend of September 26th and 27th on Zoom, of course. And you can get information at MainStreetVegan.net. So Ayurveda is this beautiful Indian healthcare system that grew up alongside yoga. So it's very ancient, but it's recognized by the World Health Organization as a viable healing modality. And they have so many wonderful self-care tips and, and ways to kind of schedule your day so that you're living in um, harmony with nature. And they have a secret. A lot of people who've heard of Ayurveda know it's a, that there are body types. But what most people don't know is that as we move along in life, everybody becomes more this particular type. And if you learn how to take care of that, it's going to answer a lot of the problems that people face going forward. So I had my 70th birthday during COVID. 
So um, went down to the parking garage under wait, my wait. building and danced oh, salsa. Did, <laughs> to you, celebrate. did you say that you, you celebrated your 70th, 7-0? 7-0. Oh, there's just no way looking at you. There's <laughs> absolutely no way. I need to see an ID, please. <laughs> Well, that's why I think that acing age with Ayurveda is going to be a wonderful weekend retreat because, you know, we're all wise in so many ways. One of the things I love about these Zoom retreats is that everybody gets to share because we all know something. And you'll also get everything that I know about acing age. And we're going to have a couple of, of wonderful guest instructors as well. So people can check that out at MainStreetVegan.net or they can go to tinyurl.com slash age retreat. And I also I'm giving um, 20% discount to listeners of my podcast, Main Street Vegan. And I'd love to do the same uh, for the viewers of yours. So if they just put pod in all capitals in the discount box, they'll get 20% off the retreat. Giddy up. What a generous mm -hmm. offer. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Victoria Moran, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your secrets to long-term success. Uh, from one weight loss uh, person to another, my hat is off to you. Congratulations on everything that you've accomplished and is still yet to come. You are fantastic. Well, back at you. You are an inspiration. I saw a picture that someone posted on Twitter recently of two women in their 70s, about the same age, and they were side by side. And one of the women was really looking kind of old and frail. She was tired and just worn down, sitting in a chair and basically just letting life pass her by. But the other woman was in the gym and she had a six pack of abs. I'm talking abs of steel. And she's looking like she's still ready to conquer the world. So ask yourself, who is it that you want to be as you grow older? A lot of that is your choice. That's a pretty cool thought, huh? And a lot of that, that choice, it comes from nutrition and making good decisions about the food that we eat. So what do you say we raise our nutrition IQs together now with the help of Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis? We recently got together on the exam room live to open up the doctor's mailbag and they answered a ton of great diet and health questions that viewers had sent in. A little bit of everything is in the mailbag today. So we've got questions like, is there any harm in eating raw vegetables every day as opposed to cooked ones? And how can I cut down on cravings when I've got such a sweet tooth? And what about some nutrition advice for teens? What can they offer up there? And someone also wanted to shatter some myths about soy, wanted to know what are the true health advantages there as far as including soy in their diet. So they answered that and a whole lot more with the doctor's mailbag. Dr. Loomis, before we get going here, congratulations are in order because James Wilkes just a couple of weeks ago said, it appears that the Game Changers will become the most watched documentary in history. And you played a big role in that. So a tip of the hat to you, good sir. 
Thank you. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, very, I think I think it, the number you quoted was like 100 million views worldwide or something like that, which is really amazing. And in fact, um, I saw two or three patients this week, new patients who, who converted to a plant-based diet solely based on watching that, that movie. So it's had such an impact, not only on helping athletes understand, you know, we don't need protein to be big and strong, but, but, but just people in general, these are, these are people that just want to be healthier. And, and, and um, so, so really, it, I, I have to say really amazing. And I feel blessed to be part of that project. Yeah. And, and speaking with one of the film's producers, she was also telling me that the numbers are just extraordinary in China in terms of viewership, how many people are watching that documentary right now. And it's really going to change a whole lot of lives. And that coincides with what, you know, Dr. Jia Zhu tells me all the time when he's on the show, just the appetite for plant-based diets and information about them is so ravenous over there right now. It's, it's really, it's game changing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, let's go ahead and open up that doctor's mailbag right now. Dr. Loomis, the first question comes to you. And this one comes to us from a heart attack survivor by the name of Shane, who is looking for some advice. He writes, I just had my eight-month checkup after a Widowmaker heart attack. I had four stents put in and have been eating a whole food plant-based diet ever since. My weight dropped 50 pounds and my cholesterol has also fallen from 235 to 144. But I'm on statins and asked my doctor if I could stop taking them. But he said, if I did, my cholesterol would go up and the pills also help with heart health. He said there is no cure for heart disease. His question to you is this. Should he be looking for a new doctor that embraces the idea of eating a whole food plant-based diet? Well, first of all, congratulations on the improvements on your health and and, uh, and and after you transition to a plant-based diet. I know how hard that can be to kind of unwind decades worth of attitudes toward food and, and, and to really embrace a whole food plant-based diet and congratulations on accomplishing that. Um, so that's a great question. Um, and, and it's one I hear all the time. Um, so, you know, when we think about the treatment of cholesterol, um, you can kind of divide the strategies into two categories. Uh, we have primary prevention, which is uh, people have high cholesterol. We're trying to prevent a future heart attack. And then we talk about secondary prevention. Secondary prevention is people that have already had a heart attack or a stroke. We're trying to prevent a future one. Um, the, the, the research around primary, the primary prevention of, of heart attack with, uh, by treating people with statins is, is much less robust if you look at, at, at relative risk, risk reduction in, um, in, in, in patients than the data for secondary prevention. And, and I think the data for secondary prevention is pretty compelling that people have had a heart attack or had a stroke probably do need to be on statins for the long run. And, and there's two, two reasons for that. Uh, one is we really want to keep the LDL cholesterol super low, um, ideally less than about 75. Um, now you can certainly accomplish that with a whole food plant-based diet. Um, but in, in, as you've experienced um, with, with in, in your own personal um, health, as you notice that marked reduction in your cholesterol, which we oftentimes see. But there's also um, evidence that uh, that statins may independently, in fact, improve vascular health. Um, so what happens with a with a, when, we, when we when people develop blockage and have a heart attack is you develop this this plaque this buildup of kind of gruel underneath the endothelium and the endothelium is the inner lining of the, of the, of the blood vessel. 
And, and um, as that plaque enlarges, it can rupture. There's a cap on top and that plaque ruptures and some of that gruel kind of oozes up and you get a blood clot that forms on top. And that's actually what causes the heart attack. And what the research suggests that statins may help stabilize it may activate some enzymes called collagenases, which, which uh, make collagen. And, and, the, and it may help stabilize that plaque to keep it from rupturing in the future, um, um, which can decrease risk for heart attack. So now, you know, statins do have side effects. They can cause muscle achiness and they can cause um, liver issues, um, you know, things like that, which are typically monitored for. But I think in a situation like this, um, um, and, and you're on it, by the way, a super, a, a really the lowest dose of statin you could be on. And, and so for my patients, at least, and I think most cardiologists, even the plant-based preventive cardiologists would agree that in a situation like this, where you've had a heart attack, you've had stents, they're probably staying on a low dose of statin. The, the, the benefit of that probably does outweigh the risk over the long run. All right. Dr. Barnard, next question comes to you. This one is from Edith. She writes, how much fiber is recommended for toddlers being introduced to foods after stopping breastfeeding? These things up. Um, the thing to do with your, your, your child is not to use a fiber supplement. Um, the fiber is naturally in the foods that you're going to provide. So if your child has some brown rice or some fruit or some vegetables, these carry some fiber naturally with them, um, with every bite they eat. So there, there's no need to... Uh, to add it up, uh, if you feed your, your child animal products, keep in mind that they don't have any fiber at all. So as long as your child is getting a plant-based diet, uh, your child will get plenty of fiber in just the right amount. Um, one other point, though, you didn't ask about this, but I do want to emphasize that when children are on a plant-based diet, they do need vitamin B12. Luckily, it's in all of the, not only in the prenatal vitamins that you might take, it's also in Flintstones and all the pediatric multiple vitamins too, but don't forget the B12. Dr. Loomis, next one comes to you. This one is from High Carb Diabetic on Twitter. Interesting name. Why would I still be experiencing digestion issues with certain legumes after eating them regularly for months? So um, some people um, have issues with gas and bloating uh, with legumes. And so the beans, what, what, what happens is there's oligosaccharides, which is just a fancy name for types of the starch or sugar that are on the outside of the beans. And, and, and when they get passed into the colon, sometimes with undigested, they get fermented by certain bacteria. And so typically this is more of a problem. It's not really so much a bean problem as it is a gut bacteria problem. Um, and, and so, um, and it can take really um, months sometimes to, to, to develop a truly healthy gut bacteria, even after you've transitioned to a plant-based diet. You know, if we could, if we could design an env environment um, to, to disrupt the human gut microbiome, we've done it, right? I mean, babies are born with a sterile gut. They have a vaginal delivery. That's their first dose of bacteria. We breastfeed. That's our second dose of bacteria. The re and the rest of our lives, we got our food out of the dirt. We played in the dirt. We drank water that had bacteria. And so we were constantly kind of replenishing our this healthy gut bacteria. We fast forward to the modern world. You know, we C-section babies. We don't breastfeed anymore. We put so much, so many poisons in the dirt we have to scrub all the dirt off our vegetables, um, you know, because of the pesticides and herbicides. We, we've polluted the water, um, so we have to put chlorine to kill the bacteria. And on top of that, we pass out antibiotics like they're candy starting at a young age. And unfortunately, although antibiotics can be life-saving, they can't tell the difference between good bacteria and bad bacteria. So people that have taken a lot of antibiotics through their lifetime 
um, um, that can disrupt gut bacteria. And there's other medications like the anti-acid medicines, the proton pump inhibitors like uh, Prezolol and, and Nexium and Prevacid can also disrupt gut bacteria. And so, um, so th- there's a couple things. So as far as restoring gut bacteria, it's important to, to eat a lot, you know, beans, in fact, legumes have soluble fiber, which serves as a prebiotic to, 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 to help um, uh, promote the growth of healthy gut bacteria. So that's important to continue to eat prebiotic foods. Um, fermented foods as well, things like pickles and sauerkraut and, 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 and kimchi have live bacteria that can help facilitate it. There's not as much data around using probiotics to help um, uh, replenish gut bacteria, but, but for some patients, I, I may do that for a bit. And in the short term, um, there are a couple of products. There's one called Beano, which is actually uh, is, a, is a little powder you put on the beans, and it, it has a lack. It has an enzyme that helps you kind of pre-digest some of those sugars before they get into the colon. Also, washing your beans um, uh, thoroughly will wash off a lot of the the, the um, oligosaccharides that are in the cooking water and such as that, which may help as well. So, all right. Next question in the mailbag. Dr. Loomis, sticking with you here. This one comes to us from Bree. She writes, I prefer raw veggies over cooked veggies. Is there any harm in eating them daily, including a variety of green veggies? That one is from 1208. Yeah, so it's very interesting. Um, um, There's a lot of people ask the question, you know, do you lose nutritional value by cooking vegetables? Or conversely, do you gain nutritional value when you cook them? So is there, do you sacrifice? And it turns out it's, it's, uh, um, um, cooking activates some compounds that, that make the, 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 the veggies more healthful, but it may deactivate some, some vitamins and minerals as well. So tomatoes, for example, uh, their tomatoes have a, pro, a, a compound called lycopene, which is an antioxidant, a polyphenol antioxidant. And it's been shown to, to, uh, for example, potentially lower the risk for prostate cancer. Um, when we cook tomatoes, the lycopene content goes up, right? Which is a good thing. But some of the vitamin C, which is also healthful part of tomatoes, um, actually goes down. Um, Same thing with things like broccoli and cauliflower. Some of the compounds that are anti-cancer cancer fighting improve when you cook it, but you lose some other nutrients. So, you know, the strategy, I think a a good strategy is to do both. Um, You know, have big, a big salad with, with fresh fruits and veggies in it that are raw, but, uh, but also um, include some cooked vegetables. Um, so you're really getting kind of both ends of the spectrum of the nutrition. You're getting the nutrition uh, that comes with eating raw vegetables, but you're also getting the nutrition, that, the, the enhanced nutrition that comes with when some vegetables get cooked. All right. Dr. Barnard, come in your way for this next one. There it is. Uh, this one comes to us from Lorraine on YouTube. She writes, I tend to have a lot of sweet cravings. How can I decrease them? Oh, okay, sweet cravings. Well, first of all, sweets aren't by definition terrible. Um, for example, if you take a nice crisp apple or an orange, these things are sweet, but they're not going to do you any harm. In fact, the more uh, fresh fruit you have, the better, really, um, within any kind of reasonable limit. Um, I think what you might be thinking about is sweets like candy and cakes and pie. And and there what you've got is the sugar that's added to something that really can be um, unhelpful in in other respects because of all the fat and stuff that's that's packed in them, plus all the fact that you just don't need all that extra sugar. Um, A a couple things I think are are worth thinking about. 
first of all, uh, have breakfast. Uh, because if you are hungry, say, going into work or going about your errands in the morning, you are much more likely to be set up for cravings than if you had had a healthy breakfast first. And if your breakfast is a low GI breakfast, that's the glycemic index, um, that means you're eating sh- foods that don't raise your blood sugar too much, that's an advantage too. If you eat foods that raise your blood sugar too fast, white bread, white bagel, your blood sugar goes up, and then it starts coming down, and it's during that downward time that the cravings kick in, especially sugar sugar uh, cravings. If you had a big bowl of oatmeal, something like that, that's going to help. Make sure you get a good night's sleep, uh, because if you are unrested uh, at, at night, you are going to wake up in the morning, and you're, you'll do anything just to get through the day, including eating all kinds of junk food. And to help you to get a good night's sleep, it's good to exercise regularly. So one thing kind of leads to another. Um, and Finally, um, it's useful to think about if sweets really do um, have become a big part of your life, you might decide to not tease yourself with them by having them a little bit. You might decide just to to leave them out. If you are a person who can have them occasionally, um, the occasional sweet vegan cake or something like that, you know, it may not really be a big deal for you. But if it's becoming a big issue, you might decide to just create a fence and not have them on uh, as part of your life at all. Sticking with you here. Next question from 1216. Teacher Sweeney, kind of open-ended, but important nonetheless. Do you have any nutrition advice for teens? Yes. Um, whether they'll take it or not is another question. <laughs> <laughs> because let's face it, when you're a teenager, you're immortal. Um, and so they will do all kinds of things, sometimes because danger is especially enticing. Um, a 16-year-old is going to want to smoke cigarettes and think about drugs and and all kinds of other things. And uh, sometimes diet is the last thing they care about. Uh, so a couple things. Uh, the first thing is, what it, what is a healthy diet for teens? It's basically the same as the healthy diet for younger kids and for adults. That's four food groups. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans. Plus, you do need vitamin B12. We've talked a little bit about that. You need it for healthy nerves, healthy blood. And so if your teen is taking a B12 supplement or any common multiple vitamin, they're covered there. So if, if they've gotten that far, that's really good. Now, if they want to interpret it in the usual teen way, which is through fast food, then that's going to mean the bean burrito or the veggie chili or the veggie burger or something like that. Fair enough. Uh, that's modern life. It's probably what you're going to be able to, to live with. One great advantage teens do have is that is that is that in many families, they are really open to ethical issues. And very often, the first person who goes vegan in the family is the teenager because of the ethical issues or the environmental issues came home to them. And so well, with, with your kids, you don't need to soft pedal that at all. Um, if, they have, if they don't eat the steak because they're compassionate for a cow, well, that's going to protect their health as well. All right, Dr. Loomis, last one for you. And this one comes to us from Kathy Hines at 1216. She writes, I'm 66 and in my ninth week of being vegan, I take calcium with D3. Do I need the calcium? So that's a great question. So yes, in fact, you, I mean, uh, calcium needs to be an important part of your diet. Um, presumably being postmenopausal, the recommendations are about 1200 milligrams a day. However, um, there is evidence that taking your calcium in a pill and a supplement may actually increase your risk for heart disease. Um, and, and what happens is, is, as I mentioned in an earlier question, when we start to develop that plaque, um, um, the, underneath the, the blood vessel wall, uh, underneath the endothelium that leads to heart disease, um, 
it's really just a big scar. And, and eventually that scar will, you'll start to deposit calcium in it. And that taking calcium supplements may in, in, increase, accelerate the deposition of calcium in these, in these heart lesions. Um, the good news is, is that there's lots and lots of calcium in plants and it's very easy to get calcium through, through plants. And, you know, that's one of the things that comes up if I don't drink milk or I'm going to my calcium. Well, you're going to get the same, your calcium from the same place the cow got its calcium to put in the milk and that's from the plants that you eat. Um, there's a, there's a, a good website I refer a lot of patients to called the world's healthiest food. And if you just Google world's healthiest food, calcium, It'll give you uh, it, kind of a, it's it's evidence based, it, it, but but more importantly, it gives you a whole um, uh, a list of high calcium foods. Now, it's not a vegan or plant based website, um, but what you'll see is that cow's milk is number ten or fifteen on the list as far as the best sources of calcium. Tofu being by far the best. Uh, tofu is made; it's curdled. You take soy milk and you curdle it. And the curdling agent, um, historically was gypsum, which is calcium sulfate, which, which, um, actually some of that calcium stays in the tofu. And that's why cal's tofu is such a great source of calcium. Uh, but, but green leafy vegetables, collard greens has more calcium per cup than milk. So, so it's very easy to get plenty of calcium, um, through your diet. On the vitamin D side, um, vitamin D is not really a vitamin. It's more like a hormone made in response in the sun in response to our, uh, in our skin in response to the sun. Um, that is something that I recommend you have checked intermittently. And if it's low, you might need a supplement, but getting out in the sun a little bit, um, typically, um, is, is a great way to get plenty of vitamin D. Um, but again, I, I think getting your, there's evidence that getting your calcium from food is much more helpful than getting your calcium from supplements. And that's true for pretty much any micronutrient other than say vitamin B12, which can be a nutrient, as Dr. Barnard mentioned earlier, a nutrient of concern in a plant-based diet. All right. And Dr. Barnard, the very last question of the week comes to you. This one is from Bronfit. They want to know from 1220 PM, can you tell me the advantage of soy and is there any disadvantage to eating it? Uh, great. Um, soy products uh, actually reduce cancer risk. That's the first thing to emphasize because a lot of people have imagined the opposite. And you will see some websites talking about soy uh, having isoflavones, which are phytoestrogens, increasing cancer risk. Uh, this has been put to the test. And uh, people consuming the most soy have the least cancer. Uh, specifically, women who consume more soy milk, tofu, soy yogurt, uh, those who consume the most have about 30% less risk of developing breast cancer compared to women who avoid soy. And then women who have had breast cancer in the past Again, if they consume more soy, they have about a 30% reduced risk of their cancer coming back and, and killing them. Um, so soy is actually good there. And for men, it's similar with regard to prostate cancer. Soy reduces the risk as well. Uh, disadvantages? Um, no, but I, I theoretically, I have to always think that soy is at its very healthiest the more it looks like a bean. So when soy is edamame, you can still see the bean there. And when it's turned into tempeh and tofu and so forth, it's still mostly soy. Uh, the, the more it gets changed and transformed into soy bacon, it's still way healthier than the pork bacon or the chicken bacon by far, but sometimes they're adding more sodium. You can join us for the exam room live and ask a question for yourself. Raise your nutrition IQ even higher. 
Join us Monday through Friday for that show over on Facebook and YouTube. The show starts each day at noon Eastern. Would love to have you join us and become one of the exam roomies. You know, we launched that show back in April and already it has more than a million and a half views. So thank you so much to everyone who has helped make that show such an incredible success. I'll tell you another podcast that's been really successful, and that is the Switch for Good podcast with Dotsie Bausch and Alexandra Paul. I had the opportunity to actually be a guest on their show recently, had the tables turned, and that episode should be coming out sometime in mid-October. They really got me to open up and share parts of my story that do not often get talked about. Some of the really darker sides to it. But what Dotsie and Alexandra also helped me realize is that everyone has these really horrendous moments in their life. But that makes overcoming those challenges getting past them and reflecting on them to make ourselves better, doing that makes the present day seem so much sweeter. So a major debt of gratitude to them for that. And I really encourage you to check out their show. Very impressed with their studio as well. Really looks slick as a biscuit. They've got shows coming up with Cynthia Sass and Allison Tierney and Dr. Angie Sadegi. I love Allison and Angie. They have been great guests here on The Exam Room. But the Switch for Good podcast, you really should check that out. So we put a link to it in the episode notes, or you can just hop over to Apple Podcast and all major platforms and check out Switch for Good. I'll tell you, Dotsie and Alexandra... They're just awesome, right? Dotsie has been on the show before as well. She's an Olympic cyclist and a huge, huge, huge proponent of ditching dairy. She's really the mastermind behind the Switch for Good movement. And Alexandra, I didn't know until recently that she had her own battle with food demons and was able to slay that beast. She was bulimic. And you would never, ever in a million years know that if you saw her on screen. She's a wonderful actor, has been in so many different things, including she starred on Baywatch. If you look her up on IMDb and you look at her resume, I mean, she's probably been in a ton of things that you've watched. Super talented actor. So they're going to be back here on the exam room very soon, and we will be having a roundtable discussion looking at food addiction through three very different lenses. The relationship with food, all of our relationships with it, never cease to amaze me. Switch gears here for a second and a heads up for those of you who are listening to this in Texas. You've heard us talk so much about the Barnard Medical Center previously, and now, so cool, 
that telemedicine appointments are now available in the Lone Star State as well. And you can schedule one with the doctors and dietitians there. They can really help you to achieve your health goals, whether that's losing weight like Victoria or combating diabetes or if you're just transitioning to a plant-based diet, just getting going, they are here to help. So make your appointment today. Call 202-527-7500 or you can visit barnardmedical.org for a full list of states where services are available. I want to say thank you again so much to Victoria Moran and Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis for being here with us today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>